This podcast is presented by Solving Kids Cancer, dedicated to improving survival through novel clinical studies. To learn more about funding opportunities, visit our website at solvingkidscancer.org and click Apply for Grant. This week in Pediatric Oncology, the podcast about new advances for childhood cancer, Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode number 72, recorded on January 26, 2018. I'm your host, Tim Kripe, from Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio, affiliated with The Ohio State University. I'm here with uh, a lot of co-hosts and a guest, as usual. So, Dr. Carrie Streeby. Hello, everyone. Welcome back, Dr. Ryan Roberts. Hey, great to be here. And uh, welcome back, and uh, an occasional uh, visitor who steps in, Dr. Jonathan Finley. Good afternoon. Delighted to be here. Thanks for being here. And our guest today is Dr. Eugene Wang from D.C. National Children's, where a place where we often get confused with. So we're from <laughs> Nationwide Children's Hospital, and sometimes we're confused as uh, National Children's Hospital. Uh, we're not worlds apart, but we're about nine, seven, eight-hour drive apart. But uh, thank you for being here today with us and uh, enjoyed your visit. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me out. Yeah, so, you know, as my colleagues will tell you, we always like to start with uh, a traditional sort of background check, as it were, <laughs> uh, trying to figure out sort of how you came to where you are today and what, what makes, made you, makes you tick, what, what makes you, uh, made you go into pediatric oncology, what got your interest in science, what got you interested in immunotherapy. I should say that at, at DC Children's, you're head of the neuroimmunotherapeutics group, something complicated like that, correct? Correct. Right. So, associate professor there, uh, practicing pediatric oncologist and, and a clinical trialist, a, an early phase clinical trialist. So tell us where you grew up and what first piqued your interest in medicine. You know, it's a hard question, actually. And I was, the fellows asked me this question at lunchtime, interestingly. And my answer to them was, I have never had a clear path that I can draw from childhood or even young adulthood to pediatric neuro-oncology. I grew up in Texas, and a small town in Texas, College Station, Texas, is, that's where Texas A&M University is, where my parents taught, and had a great upbringing there. I think that ultimately, I didn't really know that I was going to medical school in college until I went to medical school. And <laughs> Just spontaneous decision. Found yourself there. <laughs> and I, uh, I was going to be a writer, uh, and then that, that didn't pan out. But then in medical school... It's one of those scenarios where I was so many interests in many different sub-disciplines, but just couldn't pull myself away from pediatrics. And so that was probably the clearest path that I had had was I wanted to treat children and be parts of children's and their family. And then in pediatrics, I had so many interests there from ICU medicine to neurology to oncology. And ultimately, interestingly, had not applied for pediatric oncology fellowships, but ended up uh, scrambling into the match when when uh, 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 my institution did not fill. And even then... So you're a procrastinator. <laughs> I, <laughs> yeah, and even then, so I got there and uh, certainly loved the profession, especially pediatric cancer, and ultimately found myself in pediatric neuro-oncology, which married my interests in the brain and in cancer, and in a place where I felt like our entire community can make a huge difference still because there are so many children with brain cancer that we still struggle to cure. But interestingly, if despite the fact that I just told you that I never knew what I wanted to do and I almost ended up by accident in pediatric neuro-oncology, looking back, uh, I, I 
actually ended up with a medical student in a pediatric neuro-oncology lab, the lab of Dr. Henry Friedman. And if you, if you look throughout my training, I would have denied vehemently that I was going to be a pediatric oncologist or then a pediatric neuro-oncologist every step of the way. And yet the volunteer activities that I did or the patients that I gravitated to were those with brain cancer in many scenarios. And today, I just can't imagine uh, being any other place or in any other profession or sub-profession than I am today. Even though, even in retrospect, I can't go back and say this was the trigger point. I can't imagine being anywhere else. Sounds though. like your subconscious knew what you needed to do. <laughs> <laughs> Had to convince well, you. But Henry might be considered Henry. the Billy Graham of pediatric neuro-oncology. <laughs> he might have had something to do with it. Yeah. Yeah. So that's great. I mean, um, we all have our, our separate journeys and stories, but was it was there any particular uh, aspect of immune? Because you're basically now doing a lot of immunology. For, right. And what, what made you want to do that? Uh, in some ways, it might have been desperation in that... <laughs> We have had a lot of clinical trials, as I mentioned before today, that look at different kinds of chemotherapy and radiation and surgical apparatuses and move towards targeted therapy and still struggled in many ways. And so the first signals of immunotherapy, not in pediatric brain cancer, but in cancer at all, really started to arise about a decade ago, I would say, where suddenly there were these signals where immunotherapy could actually potentially be more potent than some of the more traditional ways that we treat cancer. And so because of that, I, I got interested. I did more reading on it. Um, I developed uh, one of the clinical trials for checkpoint inhibitors in pediatric brain tumors. And uh, and that sort of launched my interest. And it was one of those elements where suddenly every bit that I learned more or everything that I heard about immunotherapy made me think more that we could use this this old but made new again therapy to help children with brain cancer. So Yeah, it's great. And, you know, as you pointed out in your talk, Brain cancer is now the most common cause of death due to not only cancer but due to disease in kids. So mm-hmm. uh, really, there's an unmet need there of a great proportion. So we certainly need need new kinds of therapies. Yeah. So I I wanted to ask you a little bit about that. You gave a great overview today of kind of the the landscape of cancer immune therapies. And I was wondering if you can tell us some of the things that excite you the most right now. What 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 keeps you coming back, and what are you just dying to see the results of? I might have said, if you'd asked me this two years ago, the results of the single agent checkpoint inhibitor trials with brain tumors. I think we have enough preliminary inf- information now, or there's enough excitement about other immunotherapy modalities that now I think most of my excitement has shifted not away from checkpoints, but utilizing checkpoints in addition to other elements of immunotherapy. So uh, as I said in my talk, there are a lot of different ways, and, and it's too early to tell which is going to be the most promising. But I do feel like using adoptive cellular therapy, like a CAR T-cell, or using something like a viral vector, it just feels like with the preliminary data that's out there, as well as some of the early clinical data, that that is going to be at least one way that we can address pediatric brain cancers that hasn't been done before. I still have reservations and concerns about the way that we test these agents, as well as uh, the way to optimize their administration. Is that is this are these modes that we really need to give directly to the CNS or even directly to the tumor bed? When can we actually give those those agents and immunotherapies? How do we decide what the right agent is and what the right patients are to try this in? They're all unanswered questions, but at least by acknowledging the challenges, we can hopefully design the trials in a way that are most likely to answer or least likely to be obfuscated by some of those variables. 
at the end of the day, I think that it will be a combination therapy. Radi we can't get away from radiation, I think, because it is such an effective as much modality. As Jonathan as would like us in to. In <laughs> many situations, not in all situations. But but I think that it's it's something that we can leverage, that we can combine with. We don't have to say it's not an either-or equation. It's something that we can find a smart way to give radiation therapy, to give us uh, a little potentially potentiating chemotherapy. But we may ideally be able, if we have to use radiation, but use it at far lower doses Absolutely. in conjunction with immunotherapy yeah. agents. It's interesting. A, a number of the other solid tumor data coming out right now suggests that radiotherapy may be one of the great combinations that can be used with checkpoint inhibitors and things mm -hmm. like that to, to enhance the response of the immune system. Not necessarily treating the tumor, but converting it into a form that, that triggers those immune reactions as well. Yeah, I think that the most excited that I would be at this point would be some form of cellular therapy, whether it's virally mediated or CAR T-cell or something else like that, Com combined with some component of local therapy like a radiation um, at, combined with some modalities to switch the microenvironment, like the checkpoint inhibitors uh, or other m immunomodulatory agents for the microenvironment specifically, to turn on expression of antigen at the same time that you're giving an infector, at the same time that you're hopefully controlling some of the tumor disease at the same point. So it's going to be a multimodal approach is what I think that we're really going to get to uh, in the next few years, hopefully. It's going to make me obsolete. <laughs> Sorry, Jonathan. That that's the goal. <laughs> never happen. That's the dream. <laughs> You'll keep reinventing yourself for sure. So during your talk, you also mentioned that one of the big hurdles with immunotherapeutics is developing clinical trials in such a way that we can actually understand how these treatments are working and take into a take into account tumor pseudo progression. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something that is difficult not only for the clinicians and those that are running and developing the clinical trials to understand and overcome, but how are we going to address that with patients and families? Mm -hmm. Yeah, first define it for everyone. What is pseudoprogression? Yeah, I think that probably, although the moniker pseudoprogression is the most commonly used one, tumor inflammation is probably a better yeah. descriptor of what's happening, although everybody will understand pseudoprogression and some people might understand tumor inflammation. So that's the entity where we think of immunotherapy as being a kind of treatment that leverages your own immune system. And your own immune system is really the part of your immune system that would be attacking cancer cells or other cells. They're white blood cells. They're your immune cells. And if you have a, a fixed area and you that area is full of normal brain and normal blood vessels and normal tumor, that's not normal. Like your skull. Like your skull. <laughs> And then you add in a bunch of cells to go in and kill the cancer cells. You got to find space for those new immune cells to be there. So it's not that the immunotherapy is ineffective. In fact, it is greatly effective if it's sending a bunch of immune cells in to attack the cancer. It is just trying to find the space for those cells to both infiltrate the tumor, do the work that they need to do, kill a bunch of cancer cells. You know, if you can get past that hump, then suddenly there will be plenty of space because the cancer will be dead. And then your immune cells will probably decrease because they don't need to be there as, as much. It's just kind of getting in that phase that is difficult. If you look at the community of doctors who are looking at immunotherapy, and uh, most specifically checkpoint inhibitors, but also people doing cellular therapeutics, um, this entity of pseudoprogression is a little bit debated, especially in the solid tumor world, where they feel like, I think, there isn't very much pseudoprogression, or if that happens, it is not as serious, or it doesn't happen to very many people. And so I think that the common literature will say that there is 
8% of the cases that you'll see pseudoprogression in response to checkpoint inhibition. But we have had studies where we cannot prove that something is pseudoprogression, but where we saw massive changes on scans and in clinical exams that implied that something, that many more cells suddenly appeared in the space where the tumor was. It's not, uh, it's, it's hard for us to decide right now whether that is just an explosion of tumor cells, so those many more cells are actually just a doubling or a tripling of the tumor, or whether there was some component of the tumor that was growing and some component that was immune response, or whether it was all immune response. It's just we don't have the technology at the moment to distinguish between those three, a priori at least. Well, we do have some technologies that are, that are uh, surrogate technologies, mm. uh, obviously short of actually doing a biopsy and resection, but... But PET scan, I mean, this is not a new phenomenon, as you know. We've seen it with aggressive conventional chemotherapy or high-dose chemotherapy. Um, and a PET scan, looking at advanced MR imaging technologies, perfusion, diffusion, also give us a good clue as to whether you're seeing rapid progressive disease versus acute necrosis uh, with edema, whether there's an actual... Uh, a immunotherapeutic inflammatory response or not in relation to it. I that think, can be tricky. I think it always is. And, you know, There's Dr. no question. Dr. Strebe here is a first author on a paper last year where we injected virus into tumors and saw PET. We didn't see you know, progression by size, but we saw increased PET, increased PET that was transient, you know, a week or two or three, and then faded. And so but it's that inflammatory cells that are coming in it, rather than... In, in retrospect, we think it's inflammatory cells, yeah. not tumor progression, but... Both tumor progression and inflammation can be PET positive. So, yeah, it just gets really tricky, I think. No, that's definitely true. And you're right, Jonathan. There are a lot of investigators who are very smart using a lot of cutting-edge radio imaging, whether it's spectroscopy or PET with not um, glucose but with other moieties yes, that they use. Yes, or, right, or, or, uh, or even with just diffusion-perfusion imaging, as you say. It's, you know, we talked to the leaders in the, the radio imaging world about how they could definitively tell the difference and, and they'll tell you they can't. There are suggestions. There are things that they say that well, that seems more likely to be immune, immune response versus tumor progression. But at the end of the day, it's hard to look at that patient and say, all right, you're no more immunotherapy for you because it's so tumor progression. Or not. Even doing a biopsy doesn't give you a definitive answer That's because the, the finding of tumor cells doesn't tell you whether those tumor cells are on the way out and dying. Right. Um, or, or, or whether they're thriving. I've, in, uh, Although Anecdotal reports I've used circumstance of looking at what is the proliferative index. Mm -hmm. If you had a highly proliferative tumor that now looks basically, you know, shut down, that's kind of giving you a hint that this may be going in the right direction. It's still not definitive. Of course, T cells proliferate. Uh, they may give you a different signal. Yeah, but you can differentiate yeah. uh, um, proliferative index in, in the lymphocytes as opposed to yeah, and if you the see, glial cells. If you see a, a high lymphocytic infiltrate where you didn't before, it might be indicative. I think that that is if you had those serial biopsies that you could tell, that that, would, yeah. be, that yeah. would be a good way to tell, but we don't in the brain, and it seems uh, we are not probably able to do that because even high-grade gliomas will have a large immune cell infiltration sometimes that has oh, nothing yes. to do with your immunotherapy. Absolutely. So it's, it is, remains difficult and a problem to be solved. Absolutely. So tell us about the trial that you're designing or uh, hoping to launch soon, if you're able, um, to whatever you can entice us with. It's not quite <laughs> open yet. What's your goal there and what's your approach? So as I was saying before, I, I really like the idea of adoptive cellular therapy. I like the idea 
of skipping those steps of hoping that you can train your host immune system to recognize and become active and proliferate. You know, make enough soldier cells to go kill the cancer. So the trial that we you're, you're talking about is a trial that uh, that I'm doing in combination in conjunction with Dr. Catherine Bollard at at National in DC, and and she's been a long-term expert of uh, really taking a patient's own T cells, their own immune cells, picking out the ones that she wants, enriching those, meaning helping those to grow, and then re-injecting those into the patient. And so she uh, showed a lot of really uh, positive data in doing that methodology against an infection, which makes sense. You pull out the patient's inf- immune cells, you figure out which ones would fight the herpes infection or the EBV infection, and then you expand those and give them back. But she's also done a lot of interesting work along with some other uh, doctors there, Dr. Williams and others, who have um, looked at that same technology except picking out markers on the cancers that they were interested in, which were leukemia and lymphoma at the time, and tr- and then just finding those white blood cells in the patient that attacked those markers that were present more on their leukemia or their lymphoma, enriching them, growing them up so there was a lot of them, and then giving them back to the patient. And they saw not only stable disease, but they saw regressions of disease. So that's different from Steve Rosenberg. Till cells uh, in that his were sort of just whatever's in the tumor, but this is actually selection for T cells that are specific against certain antigens. It is different. And, you know, I think that one of the most salient differences is the immune system has, you know, there's been so often demonstrated that there are white blood cells that are reactive against the cancer cells that that person has. Now, that's clearly inadequate because they developed their cancer. So whatever immune response they had to their cancer either wasn't effective enough or the tumor was able to evade it or their immune system was not able to make it strong enough. And so the idea here is to pick out those pieces that we know are there that are ready to attack and are actually primed to attack the cancer cells and then just help them, make them stronger, more, um, increase that army and then give them back and uh, and so she demonstrated some really positive results in the leukemia, the liquid tumors, tumors quote-unquote, the leukemia lymphomas. And so they actually opened up a solid tumor trial uh, with Dr. Holly Meany's help. Uh, and then this is just the translation of that same idea into brain tumors, where we hope that what will happen is that we'll have a, a child with a high-risk brain tumor, something that we're uncertain whether we have good curative treatment for. And we'll take blood from that patient, and that's all that they need. It's a significant amount of blood, but we'll take blood from that patient. And then that patient will go back either into our care at National or into the care of wherever their home institution is. Then to um, the therapy that is that is recommended either by us or whoever their home um, physician is. And then after they're done with that, they'll come back and we'll reinfuse those cells. And the idea might be at that time that in fact the treatment that they've been getting, it might be effective and it might have held their disease at bay and and or caused their disease to regress already. And we will just give those immune cells back as a hope to augment the therapy that they've already received. Or in those situations where that therapy hasn't, that treatment really hasn't helped them very much, we'll give those cells back and hope that it will be an important help to stabilization of disease. And when we give these T cells back, there are some caveats, meaning... uh, we can't, or we shouldn't give those cells and then immediately give something that will kill them. So steroids, children, you know, a lot of children with brain tumors are on relatively high doses of steroids, and that will not be something that we'll be able to use on this trial. Um, and while we typically will say they can be getting, receiving whatever treatment their neuro-oncologist thinks they should receive, uh, we're also going to be working with them and saying, look, try not to give something that is directly cytotoxic or directly kills cells. 
because we don't want you to kill off these brand new T cells that we've just given you to try to go attack the cancer. And so the, we're really taking, I think, a lot of uh, really almost any kind of pediatric brain cancer that we don't have a good treatment for or uh, or that comes back and at that stage that we don't have anything really effective for. And that includes brainstem gliomas, TIPG. It does include brainstem gliomas. It's obviously it's a place where we have really struggled with such a high need in that space and a lot of different smart people who are trying to find something to help those patients. Unlike in the other tumors where the tumor has to have come back, patients with DIPGs or diffuse intrinsic pontine gliomas, they will be eligible really at the very beginning. So right after they're done with radiation, any time after they're done with radiation, they can um, receive that therapy. Because it takes time to make this, it's actually quite an expensive process, uh, and it takes a lot of time to pull a patient's cells out, to enrich their cells, and then to grow them up uh, in a way that's safe, gonna, you know, safe and quality assured. The earliest that we can get the blood drawn will be the best, because then we can be making that treatment while they're finishing radiation or doing whatever else it is that they're, that they're recommended to do from a treatment standpoint. And then we can give it whenever the people feel like this. Do you think that there will be a problem in drawing that blood in these patients who, at least at the time that you draw the blood at diagnosis, are going to be heavily, heavily immunosuppressed with corticosteroids? Will that impact on your ability to give it? That's a great question, and it may. We have shown, we have already done this in other patients, but not patients who have been on high-dose steroids. We're going to have to are actually getting chemotherapy. So it will be an ineligibility to infuse the cells, but we're going to try. We're still going to try. Sounds exciting. Who's paying for this trial? The, you don't mind my ass. No, I'm <laughs> trying to give some foundation credit or something. Yeah, the 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 there are um, several foundations, but the one that has really been excited and has really supported this trial in uh, almost its entirety is the Chances for Life um, Foundation. So they are a foundation uh, that was put together um, because a young woman who had a spinal tumor, uh, a malignant spinal tumor, really. Um, energize their community and so interestingly they have a their main fundraising event is a texas hold'em poker tournament <laughs> at the mgm the brand new mgm casino at children in uh, dc and so they had uh, this guy named phil phil helmuth who is a well-known hold'em poker player come and MC the event and there were lots of people who uh supported the foundation and, and joined in. And the prize was actually, and I don't know if you know play Hold'em, but um, the prize was actually entry into something called the World Series of Poker, like the, the marquee That's thing. That's a big prize for real poker players, I think. Oh, yeah. you do know, yes. So. <laughs> it's on ESPN. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, so they've been they've been incredible and excited and have raised a lot of money. And um, and then after that event, there's there was a big party. Essentially, they throw a big party at the MGM Casino, which was... But you are all invited to come down and sit down at the table with me. Great. Well, we look forward to it. But it's uh, great work, and we appreciate you know you're you're doing this, and and uh, wish you all the success that you can get because uh, we need it. We all need it. Thank you for having me. For those listening, we're happy to read your emails during a future podcast. And discuss your comments and questions if you send us a note at Twipple at Solving Kids Cancer. These podcasts are available on iTunes, on the Podbeam app, and the Solving Kids Cancer website. Thanks to the team at Solving Kids Cancer, a nonprofit charity dedicated to improving survival through creating novel treatment options for children. That team includes Donald Lidwinski, our executive producer, and Cindy Campbell, director of communications. And also thanks to Scott Kennedy and John London, the founding co-directors of Solving Kids Cancer. Remember, the more we learn, communicate, share ideas, and work together, the faster we'll reach the day. 
when all childhood cancer is preventable or curable. As always, keep up the fight, and thanks for listening to this week in Pediatric Oncology.